0: This action of the involuntary removal of a church from our roster is a first in our 134-year history. Since it is of great consequence, we who are, we, to who we are as a denomination, it deserves great attention, which is why we take pulpit time to preach and teach on the matter at hand. So here's how I want to proceed this morning. The first thing I want to do is briefly highlight what it means to say that we're covenanted together as a church. Second, I want to understand why this motion has been brought forward and its implications. To do that, it necessarily means that we have to talk about the covenant position on human sexuality and make some comments on our posture as a denomination. And the third thing I want to do is, no matter our opinion on the issue at hand, we will end with scripture that leads us to a time of prayer corporately. I think that's our appropriate response this morning. So my goal, to be clear, is not to sway you one way or the other in your decision, but to clearly articulate the issues at hand, the decision to be made, the covenant position, and what it means. Where I do seek to sway you is on how we behave, not on what we decide. My goal is to inform in this significant moment. So let's begin with our covenant life together. Those who know me at all are going to be unsurprised that I'm going to begin with history right now. I had much more to say than I will uh, this morning. You can ask me later and we'll talk. I can tell you all about covenant history. I'm going to keep this part brief. But the Evangelical Covenant Church formed as a mission society in 185 from a handful of organized and independent churches. These churches are what we call free as opposed to state churches. The founders of the covenant came from Europe, primarily Sweden. There were a couple Danes mixed in there too. In the old world, they lived under a system where church and state were intertwined. Citizenship and church were paired together. The church received their support from the government, but they also received their marching orders from the government. These immigrants in 1885 desired more. They desired a believer's church that could receive all who believed and would also be evangelistic, that the lost would be found, that you would be a member of the church based on conviction and conversion, not birth. In their desire for more freedom, there became a little too much freedom at times, a lawless sense among old Lutherans in the new world. They began to realize that they were better together, so they organized asking if there was a way they could be free and yet do more together than they could as individual churches. They called their movement a mission society at first, not a denomination, but the heart was harmonious mission together. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul speaks to a harmony like this when he says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. They sought this unity of which St. Paul speaks. In this new movement, they recognized that God had not simply covenanted with individuals to save his creation, but God had asked his church to covenant together in gospel mission. So these mission friends, as they were called, organized, doing life together, living out the commands of Jesus in their local settings, in Linzburg, Kansas, Duluth, Minnesota, Chicago, Seattle, Lincoln. They would do ministry at a local level, but they would make their decisions on life together as churches, covenanted in God's mission together. Living in harmony as free churches has been the goal since the beginning. Not independent, but interdependent congregations living locally in ministry, serving globally as the church. The first sermon preached at the 1885 meeting to form the covenant had as its text Psalm 119.63. I am a companion of all who fear you to all who follow your precepts. In practice, what this means is that we value right belief as much as right relationship. I want to say that again. In practice, what this means is that we value right belief as much as right relationship. By contrast, you can see some denominations that prioritize one thing over the other. One denomination may sacrifice relationship for belief, being so particular in the questions and creeds as to unnecessarily make their fellowship too small, and their skepticism of other true believers too big. Other denominations might value relationship at the expense of orthodoxy. They have seen the image of God in one another, but they've abandoned truth along the way. In the covenant, we're often accused of being one or the other or both. In the current conversation, we're accused of being both sacrificing orthodoxy and relationship. Welcome to the covenant. Happens all the time, everywhere you go. We're always in the middle, accused of being the extremes. In order to be free churches, covenanted in unity, there must be agreed upon standards. While we hold as a basic faith statement both the apostles and the Nicene creeds, we've also agreed to live by six covenant affirmations. We live with these in an open set of principles. Much like our planet orbits around the sun, so our individual churches orbit around these affirmations. Some may orbit in a more elliptical way, some may be more of a perfect circle, but as long as the gravitational pull towards those affirmations remains strong, we're able to be mission friends. In the case being brought before us regarding First Covenant Minneapolis, the first and the sixth affirmations are being held up together as a rationale for the actions of First Covenant Minneapolis. The first affirmation states we affirm the centrality of the Word of God, believing that the Bible, the Old and New Testaments are the Word of God and the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. Ultimately, Scripture is our creed, our standard of belief. And we balance that out with our sixth affirmation, which states that we affirm the reality of freedom in Christ. To quote from our covenant affirmations booklet, quote, we offer freedom to one another to differ on issues of belief or practice where the biblical and historical record seems to allow for a variety of interpretations of the will and purposes of God. We in the covenant church seek to focus on what unites us as followers of Christ rather than on what divides us. Mission friends, walking as far as we can together in right belief and right relationship. As you can see, though, there may be occasions where these affirmations, our non-creedal stance, and our reliance on scripture alone could cause chaos rather than clarity. When we feel that there is a need to get more specific about what we believe as the covenant, we write resolutions. The first true resolution was written in 1951, entitled The International Situation, War and Peace, related to communism and nuclear war. More recently, we've adopted resolutions on creation care, domestic violence, immigration, abortion, people with disabilities, women in ministry, and criminal justice, to name a few. All resolutions are termed non-binding, meaning they represent the center of covenant belief about that issue. There will be those on one side or the other, even extremes, within our fellowship of churches. But being out of line on any one of these will not constitute being out of harmony. The resolution that comes to the forefront in the motion being taken up at Gather 2019 relates to our most searched for resolution with a long history the 1996 resolution on human sexuality, which declares, quote, God created people male and female and provided for the marriage relationship in which two may become one. A publicly declared legally binding marriage between one man and one woman is the one appropriate place for sexual intercourse. Heterosexual marriage, faithfulness within marriage, abstinence outside of marriage, these constitute the Christian standard. When we fall short, we are invited to repent, receive the forgiveness of God, and amend our lives, unquote. And here I want to pause and speak not to the position of the covenant, but to the posture that we should have as believers towards all who would identify with the letters LGBT+. And I'm going to use simply LGBT going forward. This seems to be the primary acronym used. For those, for clarity's sake, that stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. It does not exclude uh, anybody beyond that. These are people, not a position. And our posture matters. Let me begin with my own experience. Um, my first real introduction to the LGBT world of thought came towards the end of my college studies, the fall of 2000. I was studying theology at North Park University in Chicago, our denominational school and had the opportunity to take a seminary-level course in Evanston, Illinois, at an Episcopal Seminary. The professor was gay. Most of my classmates were gay, lesbian, or affirming, and most of them were clergy in training. This was new for me. At the time, few people in the LGBT community were seriously discussing marriage, but rather discussing civil unions, health benefits, and combating the image of all gay men living a life of sleeping around. I decided at the time that I would be quick to listen. To hear my professor and classmates out on the issue, to be willing to hear stories, and I did. A family rejection, of deep hurt, of a desire to find someone to love and be loved, to grow old together. These were not acronyms and letters, but people and lives. My second significant moment of exposure was when I was a hospital chaplain roughly 12 years ago. My supervisor was an ordained Presbyterian minister living with her partner. Most of my intern-level colleagues were affirming in their stance. Many of my colleagues were gay, lesbian, or allies. Again I wanted to be quick to listen, to hear the stories of realization that they were attracted to those of the same sex, to hear stories of hurt, rejection, deep pain. I have the utmost regard for my supervisor. She wrote the best review of me I've ever read, and today She really gets me. Today, I would have coffee with her in a heartbeat and love it. I tell you this so you can hear some important contrasts. In our own congregation, we have different theological understandings of the covenant position. As your senior pastor, I have listened and learned from the LGBT community when I've had the chance I continue to read material, articles, and books that present both sides of the theological spectrum. Engaging that process leads to theological positions. That is, we take the Bible and we make conclusions on what the text means. But we must look at our posture as God's people, not just our position. Your theological conclusions matter greatly. They're very important but your biblical posture matters just as much to God. Ephesians 4.32 admonishes us as God's people to be kind and compassionate to one another. That's our posture beginning in the church and looking outward. And we have to establish this point about compassion. Compassion whether you realize it or not, in the evangelical world, there is a broad and biblical discussion going on right now contending with the relevant biblical passages regarding LGBT concerns. So I say, don't be afraid of the books for and against your own position. Read, contend, discuss. But let's not settle for mediocrity of argument on either side. Let's not oversimplify And I've I've heard it from both extremes. Somebody will come and say, did you know that there are only six verses in the Bible that speak about homosexuality? And Jesus doesn't talk about it at all. Jesus talks about love, so we just need to love. Or on the flip side, someone will come with those six verses and and just say, well, you've got Sodom and Gomorrah, and you've got Leviticus 18, and you've got uh, Romans 1, and argument's done. let's never give thin responses to thick questions. The church may have a position. Indeed, it does. But we have all too often done a terrible job of living that out. We've too often appeared or even sometimes been mean-spirited, not understanding, and uncompassionate. In so many contexts, LGBT LGBT people are bullied, feel alone, isolated, left to their own emotions, and worse. And we're not being biblical if we simply stand for a position but forget about the people. If we let the image of God in those individuals be mocked without defense from the church, we are not following the words of James 4.17. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. There are many practical things I think we can do within the church world. We can't discuss all of those now. But I can, however, give us a few practical words for compassion for both sides. If you hold a traditional view on this issue, per the ECC stance, be less fearful. Let's not be the visible definition of the word homophobic. Also, be quick to listen. It is entirely possible to ask questions that allow you to get to know someone with whom you disagree. Questions like, What was it like when you told your parents you were gay? Or, How did you meet your partner? They may seem uncomfortable to ask, but can be spoken to build a relationship. They don't mean, I agree with everything you believe. And when we do this, we may discover that not only can we listen well, show compassionate care even in disagreement, but we may find ways to include that person in our life, even in church life. If you hold an affirming position for an individual believer in the covenant, this is part of the reality of freedom in Christ. I'm glad we can worship together, and we do. Those who hold this view should help show the world that love might not always mean agreement. A person can disagree without being fearful of another person's position, and they can still love one another. What neither position can do is cease conversation. That's not what is intended by our freedom in Christ. Freedom means continued and loving dialogue on biblical grounds. Once we've stopped talking, we all lose. Now that we've said all this, understanding the covenant position and what freedom in Christ might mean, uh, let's get down to the facts of the decision to be made. So we heard the text of the 1996 resolution on human sexuality. In short, celibacy and singleness, monogamy and heterosexual marriage. At the 2003 annual meeting a motion was made to ask the Board of Ordered Ministry to refine what this stance means in practice. At the 2004 annual meeting they returned and the Board came back with their refinements and the Board of Ordered Ministry presented the following summary. These are from the minutes of that meeting. One, celibacy and singleness and faithfulness in heterosexual marriage is our standard. Two. Covenant clergy are not permitted to officiate at same-sex unions, blessings, or or marriages. Three, pastors and congregations are called to accurately represent the Evangelical Covenant Church position. Four, we desire to be marked by mutual trust and graciousness in our common life as we seek to live out these matters in our local settings. Now after reading the report, uh, Dr. Dave Kirsten, who was leading this at the time, brought the following motion. The Board of Ordered Ministry recommends to the 119th Annual Meeting that the resolution on human sexuality adopted by the 1996 Annual Meeting serve the Evangelical Covenant Church as one, the Guiding Statement on Human Sexuality and the Marriage Ethic, and two, the basis for ECC policy, practices, and guidelines on these matters. It is important to to note again, that the 1996 resolution was originally non-binding. An amendment was made at the 2004 annual meeting to add a third motion here, which reads, and this was from the floor, to urge clergy and churches to neither seek nor maintain standing within the covenant unless they affirm this position both privately and publicly. The 2004 vote made this resolution, what we read, those four rules with the two clarifications, uh, the rule going forward, this extra amendment was voted down, and it would have simply made it our litmus test for faithfulness. If a church overtly or covertly refused to live this out, they would be brought up for involuntary removal from the roster of churches. That's just it. It was voted down 529 to 46. And so you may ask yourself now is First Covenant Church being held to some standard we voted down? In 2004. What really is behind all this? The charge against First Covenant in Minneapolis, again, is because they remain out of harmony with the covenant after all steps required or allowed by Section 44 of the ECC bylaws to bring them back in. I'm gonna read the five sort of charges that come with that that get more specific, and then we'll take them one by one. So I'm gonna read them, you'll hear them, and then you'll see them each in turn. So the executive board, it continues, Uh, determined that first covenant is out of harmony by contravening the evangelical covenant church in five areas. One, the ECC's standard of marriage by eliminating its heterosexual nature. Two, the ECC's prohibition of clergy officiating and participating at same-sex weddings. Three, the evangelical covenant church's requirement that clergy adhere to a personal behavioral standard of celibacy and singleness and faithfulness in heterosexual marriage. Four, the covenant's guidelines and expectation that congregations refrain from hosting same-sex weddings and related events and five, the determination of the Board of Ordered Ministry uh, by locally credentialing a pastor whose ECC credentials were removed for cause they continue, you will find that First Covenant disputes the findings of the Evangelical Covenant Church Executive Board let's take these point by point and discuss what, each exec- what the Executive Board did in their investigation along the way Regarding the first one, the standard of changing the standard of marriage, this was something that did change in March 2013. First Covenant Minneapolis maintained the language of celibacy and singleness, monogamy and marriage, and that the same standard of marriage was applied to heterosexual as well as same-sex couples. In short, they said they maintained the ECC position, yet they removed the word heterosexual from their policy. On point number two, uh, regarding the prohibition of clergy officiating, First Covenant allowed a locally licensed, so a non-covenant, staff member to perform a same-sex wedding off-site, so not in uh, First Covenant's facility. By the letter of the law, they followed the policy, uh, but this uh, certainly tests uh, the spirit of the, the letter of the law. Regarding point number three, I'm not aware of a specific incident, however, uh, First Covenant Minneapolis not only created a document in 2013 to allow for a change in their stance on this issue, they also amended their bylaws in November 2018 to clarify their quote, independence slash self-governance, unquote, essentially removing language that allowed them to have a lead pastor ordained in the covenant and supporting their conference and denomination at their discretion. They also removed any language from their bylaws that should they reach the point of closure, their assets would not go to the local conference or the evangelical covenant church. And while not required, uh, most churches reflect their covenanted nature uh, by allowing their assets to be used by their conference or the ECC should they cease to exist as a worshiping body. This appears to have been a reactionary move on their part to the executive board investigation. Concerning point four, In an email exchange in 2018, it was confirmed that indeed First Covenant had changed their policies to allow for same-sex weddings in their facility. Point number five steps away from the specific work of the Executive Board and brings in separate work from the Board of Ordered Ministry. Throughout this process, the senior pastor of First Covenant Minneapolis, the Reverend Dan Collison, has stated that when he joined the Covenant in 2009, he was either questioning or was not in line with the Covenant's stance. In truth, Reverend Collison's claim, or the truth of Reverend Collison's claim has been called into question by the superintendent of his conference, I believe that we will never have complete clarity on the fullness of this claim. What we can determine is that by the March, March 2017, uh, Reverend Collison preached a sermon that stated that he and First Covenant Minneapolis were taking a different path than that set out by the 1996 and 2004 statements regarding human sexuality. As a result of this change in stance, and that he was then then not following the 2004 updated guidelines, Reverend Collison was called by the Board of Ordered Ministry for further conversation. The result was the suspension of his ordination in the ECC. The reaction from First Covenant leadership was to license him locally, a move that violates the way we do ordination in the Evangelical Covenant Church. Ordination is granted by the Covenant Churches. By locally licensing, First Covenant was claiming independence, not interdependence, to their mission friends. I really hope this serves as a fair summary of the charges and facts that we can know. There were some 143 pages of information that were distributed officially by the Executive Board for Delegates to review in advance of Gather 2019. My hope was not to give you every detail, thanks be to God, but the salient points of the case and the background. There are, I believe, two primary implications uh, that could come from this vote. Others, of course, but two primary. And I want to be clear, no matter what happens at Gather 2019, our gathering of mission friends will never be the same. This is a decisive moment in our fellowship of churches and will have effect for years to come. The first and most obvious implication is that this will test how binding the 1996 and 2004 Resolution on Human Sexuality actually are for covenant churches. It should be noted that the sixth affirmation, reality of freedom in Christ, allows great freedom to local congregations and how they live out their covenant life. It is not freedom from rules, though, but rather freedom to covenant together. We can make local decisions based on local context for maximum ministry. What works in Boston may not work in Austin, is what that means. But we're not to disregard the unity, our unity for that freedom. Freedom to, not freedom from. Under this covenant freedom, though, clergy in the evangelical covenant church have far less freedom. Our ordination belongs to the churches not ourselves or the local congregation. We serve with the understanding that we will uphold and advocate for covenant distinctives such as infant and believer baptism, women and men serving at all levels of ministry, and regarding the 2004 resolution, it is clear the clergy are to fairly represent the position. There is room for dissent to a position, but the case before us is a test of how much dissent and the methods and means of dissent. When delegates vote, they'll be voting not just to dismiss a church, but clarifying what standard all other churches must abide by on this particular issue. The second implication is less obvious, but may have greater ramifications. This case will test how we make decisions as a covenant people are any of the other non-binding resolutions going to be raised as a new litmus test and become binding, thus calling us to redefine our understanding of the reality of freedom in Christ? I'm simply saying that the process is as important as the conclusion here. This is a difficult moment. It's not a simple moment. And as I said at the beginning, my goal is not to sway you one way or the other, but to clearly articulate the decision to be made. Where I do seek to sway is how we behave, not on what we decide. So I want to ask you all to find Hebrews 4 14 through 16 with me right now. I absolutely love the book of Hebrews. I love the call of the book of Hebrews, and this calls us this morning. and find grace to help us in our time of need. The authority of the church is not you, it's not me, it's not the Evangelical Covenant Church, it's not the Pope or even St. Peter. Jesus Christ is our great high priest. In Jesus, we have a direct line to God the Father. In Jesus, we can see the desire of the Father for you and me. And the book of Hebrews calls the church to unity under this great high priest. And whether we are in a moment of great awe at God's power and work, or whether we are at a great loss as to what to do next, verse 16 gives us our call. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That grace and mercy is for all who approach the throne of grace, gay, straight, confused, and overconfident. All we sinners need the authority and power of the great high priest. If we are willing to approach the throne and receive grace and mercy from God, then we'd better be willing to grant that and give out grace and mercy. Jesus Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith. If we claim to have found that grace and mercy, it can only come from Jesus. If we claim Jesus, we are his followers. And we are to become like him by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when John writes about Jesus in John 1.14, we read, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. If Jesus was full of grace and truth, and we have any claim as his followers, then our lives had better be characterized by both these traits, grace and truth. In practical terms, Paul tells us how this behavior of grace and truth is to be played out. We return back to Ephesians 4.32 to find out. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. This must characterize our conversation, our attitudes, our actions as God's people. Among the Evangelical Covenant Church clergy, many of us are active on a closed Facebook group that at its best allows us to use our collective wisdom for best practices and new ideas in our local congregations. At its worst, it is a burning dumpster fire of anger over the particular issue at hand. And I bring this up because I'm witnessing too much friendly fire among God's elect called to serve. And this friendly fire is not limited to clergy. It's unfortunate, and it's unchristlike. It may very well be that in an attitude of grace and truth, we realize that First Covenant Minneapolis and even a few other churches may need to exit the denomination. We were mission friends and no longer can we hold that fellowship together. It may also be that we can navigate new pathways forward in biblical faithfulness and freedom in Christ together. I really don't know what will happen. And I'm as torn and conflicted over this as anyone. I've laid awake and prayed. I've grieved this moment with all the weightiness it deserves. One thing I do know. We will not be serving the interests of God's kingdom if we are not full of grace and truth in either decision. We may be allowed to break fellowship, but we are not allowed to be jerks as we do it. We serve Jesus Christ in his kingdom, not the kingdom of this world. We serve the God of heaven, right? Creator and sustainer of all, giver of life. We do not use the tools of the evil one to make decisions for God's church. Grace, truth, forgiveness, kindness, compassion, these are our marks as mission friends covenanted with God and his mission. We bring good news and good news. Alone as his people. So, what now? What next? We do the most appropriate thing. We take extended time, intentional time, to set our hearts right and approach the throne of grace to receive God's mercy.